And please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed we have been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Holy God, we want to pause for a moment and sense with our brother Paul this idea of knowing the fear of you or the terror of you. Too often our thoughts of you are glib. They are merely fanciful. They are light. They are not full of glory. Forgive us, Lord. In these next moments, may we be pressed upon by the kabod, the glory of God, by the weight of your presence and of your word and of the reality of your judgment. But we know, Lord, that the reality of who you are is not meant simply to drive us crazy with fear, but to drive us desperately to Christ. So would you do that for us today? May we be with Paul confident people because we know Christ and he is in us and we are in him. We thank you, Christ, for this, your written word given to us by your spirit. Now, please press it upon our souls, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hopefully most of you received the uh, sermon outline, on the back of which is a cartoon strip from Calvin and Hobbes. I'm sorry I was not able to get that up on the overhead, but hopefully most of you received it on a printed form. And you see, this was uh, in the Sunday cartoon strips sometime in early January. Calvin and his dear friend Hobbes are out uh, playing in the snow. And 
Hobbes, the tiger, says to Calvin, did you make any New Year resolutions for this year? And Calvin says, heck no. (laughs) I'm fine this the way I am. Why should I change? In fact, I think it's high time the world started changing to suit me. I don't see why I should do all the changing around here. If the new year requires resolutions, I say it's up to everyone else, not me. I don't need to improve. Everyone else does. And then Calvin says to his friend Hobbes, How about you? Did you make any resolutions? And Hobbes says, Well, I had resolved to be less offended by human nature, but I think I already blew it. I like that strip because Calvin, or I guess Water, Waterson, or whatever the author's name, is toying with us on one of the great problems in life. How do we work out a biblical doctrine of change? The problem comes to us in both a horizontal aspect and a vertical one. In, in a horizontal aspect, in our relationships with other people, Right? You know the feeling that Hobbes is, or that Calvin is talking about. You know inside that you're not exactly what you would want to be. And yet at the same time, surely you have felt those inner things inside of you that keeps wondering when everyone else is going to change to suit you. And then it works the same way in your relationship with other people, doesn't it? If you are married, you know, surely... This conflict within. You husbands know that, I can't remember if it's 90 or 95% of all the problems are yours. Um, 95. Okay. Do we, have a, do we have a vote for 96? All the women raising their hands. Um, 95% of all the problems are yours in the, in the marriage relationship, and yet don't you lie at wake some nights in bed? I, I like the way one of the... Uh, the, the guys that I listen to in, in biblical counseling, he says it's like your stomach is on the spin cycle in the washing machine. You know, it's ringing out that last little bit of everything in you. And you lie there in bed thinking, it may be 95% my fault, but when is she going to change the other 5% that's hers? And, then, and it works that way in your relationship with God too. right? The, the, the whole point, or, or if we were to say, that, what is the one word that kind of, sets Christianity off from every other religion, it would surely be the word grace, right? Even John says that in his introduction to the Gospels in John chapter 1. He says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. That, of course, does not mean that there was no grace prior to Jesus, but that what happened in Christ was so much more gracious than anything we could have ever thought or imagined. It's as if there was no grace prior to the coming of Christ. And so we we rejoice over that. We even have a song. I don't know if we sing it here at Dominion, but it's in many hymn books. Just as I am without one plea, except that thy blood was shed for me. Then we come to this God of grace and we open up his book and Quite honestly, on every page, he's telling us to change. (laughs) You you open it up, until now, it says, Jesus, you have loved your friends. Well, yeah, of course I did. Who else would I love, Jesus? And then he says, well, I'll tell you, here's what I want you to do from now on. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do good to those that persecute you. You've got to be kidding. 
When I do marriage counseling, I'm, I'm trying to get the husband to, to love his wife while she's persecuting him. Of course, he does usually feel like she's his enemy. But how many of us are really ready to hear that from Christ? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let no unwholesome word come from your mouth, but only what is good for edification to impart grace to the hearer. Is it not our daily struggle to tame our tongues so that what comes out is not like battery acid rather than grace imparting blessings? Put off the old self, he tells the church in Ephesus, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in, in true righteousness and holiness. We could go on and on on every page of the New Testament as well as the Old. We see these commands to change. If God loves me just as I am, without one plea, why does He insist so much on changing me? During the rest of this year, as I occasionally preach when Pastor Kaiser is on vacation or at a conference or doing other pastoral responsibilities, what I would like to do is take each time I preach and look at a different aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. That's given in Galatians chapter 5. And Paul says there, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness. Uh, I left out uh, love, joy, peace, patience, which is long-suffering and our version, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. So those can be kind of, since I'll be preaching a week here or a week there, it can be little package sermons, uh, kind of one at a time. But what I want to do over these next, this week and the next three, is lay a foundation for a series on the fruit of the Spirit, a foundation for this idea of what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in our lives. What changes does He produce? Last summer, my family and I went down to Gulf Shores, Alabama. My parents have a, a vacation house there. And uh, you can imagine it's really hot in August. And we uh, went out one day in my dad's truck. And uh, very nice, it's actually a Hummer. Um, you know, very nice vehicle. And as I got in the car, I noticed this incredibly foul smell. And I knew that I had taken a shower. So I checked with everybody else in the car, and it seemed like most of the people had some level of deodorizing, which sometimes with kids they don't. But in this case, we did. So I started sniffing around trying to find it. And then in Gulf, in, in, on the Gulf of Mexico in August, it, it was about 11 o'clock, so the sun is blazing. And as you can imagine, you, you, know, you, you have to cover your eyes, and then you look in the car, and it appears like a cave, right, pitch dark. And I kind of isolated the smell under the seat, but I could not see anything. It, it was absolutely dark. And, of course, these fancy cars nowadays, you have four or five different motors under the seat in order to be able to move the seat in all different directions. And you have heaters and air conditioners and wires. And so I could see absolutely nothing, and it's dark. So I had to reach my hand. <laughs> I still feel the shivers from it. Reach... And I just knew, and you know how when you grab onto something and just in that instant you're like, oh, I wish I hadn't grabbed that. Because <laughs> it, it's like uh, that guy in Ghostbusters when he got slimed by the ghost, uh, forget who it was, Bill Murray. But I felt like my hand had been slimed as it, and I could feel it dripping down. And I pulled my hand out and it was a black, rotten, stinking tomato. Oh, 
It had been there for three weeks in a hundred degree weather, locked inside the car with the windows up. You know how they, at grocery stores nowadays, I don't know if you guys have noticed it, but they give you these plastic bags. So you put them in and then the bag falls apart and then all your food rolls around on the floorboard. I don't know why they don't just take it out and dump it on the floorboard. I think it'd be easier. So the tomato had rolled under there and there it was on my hand. Now, I give you that graphic illustration because I want to remind you of what Pastor Kaiser talked about uh, earlier in the communion meditation. And that is this. When God tells us about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, when He tells us about those things, He's also going to have to tell us that the fruit that comes out of our lives naturally, apart from the Spirit, is a rotten tomato. That's what it's like. It's a gross and disgusting thing. And so, we'll see a little bit later today, in order to put on this fruit or to have the Spirit produce, us, produce this fruit in us, there's going to have to be a, a pruning away. We're going to have to crawl under the seat of the Hummer, so to speak, and reach under there and pull out those rotten tomatoes. And it, and it is a little bit unpleasant, but that's what it's like. And, and we need to be prepared for that if we are going to grow and change into the image of Christ. So that's what I hope to, uh, to work with you on when I have the opportunity to preach, and I want to lay the foundation for that uh, over the next four weeks. And I want to really think about, with you together, I want to really ask that you pray for this over the next weeks, but think about what it feels like to have this change go on in our lives. What is that spin cycle going on in your stomach? What is that like, and how do we get over it? And have God's work in us. Now with that introduction, I just want to note three truths. And these are on your outline on the back of the little cartoon strip. Three truths from this text that I think will begin to get us started on the path of change. The first of which is the grace of God produces confidence. The grace of God produces confidence. Look again with me at verses 5 to 8 of chapter 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Did you hear Paul say it twice in those few verses? We are confident. If you have some other versions, it may say we are of good courage. Either translation or both translations are good explanations of the Greek word. And they both say the same thing that Paul is telling us. He is full of confidence. Now, that's an interesting thing to say when you realize how hard life is. It's not easy, is it? And... Many of you know this. You have made it your aim to please the Lord. And you know that as you try to live a life pleasing to the Lord, it seems even harder, does it not? You have the world and the flesh and the devil wrestling against you. You have these feelings inside like our friend Calvin did. Your own sin nature that even though you know you need to be different, inside it just is... Well, it... It feels like you're dying inside, doesn't it? In order to have the fruit 
of the Holy Spirit. And so all of these things come together to distract us and tempt us and lead us, at least Satan hopes, to despair. But that's not what happened to Paul. He is full of courage. He is absolutely confident. Now, where does his confidence come from? Well, first, I want you to know that Paul has confidence about his life here. He has confidence about his life here. Paul would tell us and tells us in this text that we who are in Christ know that our life is not in vain. The struggles to to reach your hand under there and grab the tomatoes and pull them out and throw them away, those struggles against the flesh, against the sinful desires, those are valuable. He has, Paul says, we have confidence because we have made it our aim to please God. We have confidence because we know, but we know, but we know that loving the Lord more than we love the things of this world will bring us great joy and great reward. We can even have confidence while we're pruning away the fruit which comes naturally to us and replacing it with the fruit of the Spirit because we know that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Is that your confidence this morning? You see, Christ gives the confidence to live. Paul says that we're confident. We're pleased to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, but we're also confident knowing that while we're here in the body and absent from the Lord, we can live a life pleasing to Him. But second, not only are we confident about our life here, Paul wants you to be confident about your life here after. He wants you to be confident about the life that you have with Him forever and ever. Because Paul here says, listen, even though our body be destroyed... We who know Christ have a new body. We will have a new life, a new heaven, and a new earth. A place that has been prepared, it says in verses 1 to 4, by God Himself. And this should fill us with great confidence. And how do we know this is true? It's in verse 5. Look, you have the Holy Spirit within you, guaranteeing you of your acceptance before God. Christ will stand on your behalf before the Father, at the judgment, so that though we, verse 11, know the terror of the Lord, we will not experience the terror of the Lord. Now, what does all of this have to do with change? Well, it has this. I want you to be honest today. Maybe for a few minutes when you're not usually honest, but be honest. And would you not admit that your life really is not fully well-pleasing to the Lord? Can you admit that at least this morning? That there are areas where you failed. There are temptations that have their grip on you. There is a love for the world within the depth of your soul. There are things that if Joel were to, surprise, surprise, pull out a new overhead today and pop them up and say, hey, here Stan sins today. I just said Stan because I didn't want you to know who I was talking about. Here Stan sins today. And the rest of us think, I wonder if he's got one in there for me. And we'd all be running out the back door. Couldn't we admit today that there are some things in our life that are not pleasing to God? Well, what are we going to do about that? Some people despair. Some people say, I just cannot please God. I give up. That's not what Paul does. Paul says, we do not despair. We are full of confidence because we can please the Lord. 
God's Spirit works in us and we can change. You can change. You can live a life more pleasing to Him. And if you are honest, that's something you want. If you are a Christian this morning, you want that. You want a life pleasing to Him. But then, lest you say, oh yeah, well, it's great that I can change, but how am I ever going to change enough to please God? Paul here reminds you our confidence is not because we change. It's because of Christ. And He will stand before the Father. He will testify in our behalf. He will lay His life open before God at the final judgment and say, the change that has been worked in this saint is because I have already accepted them. Full of confidence. Confidence about your life here. Confidence about your life hereafter. Is that your confidence this morning? The grace of God. If God's grace is working in your life, that's the confidence He produces. And if that's not yours this morning, and I want to encourage you to get a relationship with God that fills you with that confidence. And that's where Pastor Kaiser or I could help you through counseling or... Many of the other sisters or brothers here. So that's the first idea. The grace of God produces confidence. Second, I want you to notice that the grace of God does produce a desire to please Him. Look at verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. When I do biblical counseling or in training for biblical counseling, this is a key verse. It's a key verse because many of us get into trouble... Because our aim is off. Like a marksman who has a rifle and mounted to the top of it is a telescope sight, but the sight is not pointing in line with the rifle barrel. And you're looking down the scope and you've got it aimed at that speaker in the back there, but when you fire, it hits Jonathan between the eyes. That's not good. And that's where many of us are. We're, we're trying so hard, but our aim is in the wrong place. So we need to ask ourselves, have we made it our aim to please God in all things, or are your passions and desires twisting your sight offline with the barrel of your gun? You see, the Bible says if you are a true Christian, if you have... Genuine faith in Jesus. There is nothing that pleases you more than pleasing God. There is nothing that can make you happier than pleasing God. I see this in my kids all the time. When my kids do something that uh, is helpful around the house and I say to them, Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. You've done a great job. You've done something well. They beam with joy. They love to please their parents. Well, the Bible says the child of God is the exact same way. If you are a Christian today, you'd love to please the Father in heaven. It, that, that verse where Jesus says, there will come a day when Father will say, well done, my good and faithful ser servant. That's a verse that you can meditate on day and night because it encourages you because you want to please God. So if the grace of God produces a desire to please Him, how do we do this? How do we begin to do all things to please God. There are four things I'd like to show you. This is not everything, of course, but this will get you a foundation to kind of get started. The first thing you can do, or the first way to begin to please God, is to walk by faith and not by sight. Walk by faith and not by sight. Have any of you ever been to Silver Dollar City down in, in Branson, Missouri? A couple of you? 
Boy, not very many. Now you've, you've missed out. It, it's a nice place. There's an amusement um, attraction there called Grandfather's House. And when you walk through Grandfather's House, as you start walking through it, um, as you begin to walk through, the, the floors begin to tilt and the walls begin to tilt. So that it's really hard to walk straight. And then there are mirrors in strange places. And then you get in one place and the little machine drops a bowling ball on a, on a pool table and the ball rolls uphill. Now that's a very disconcerting thing to watch a ball <laughs> roll uphill. Now how many of you believe that the ball rolled uphill? It didn't roll up. Why did, it, why did I, why, or when you stand in there looking at it, you say, that ball's rolling uphill. Why do you think that? Because the tilting of the floors and the tilting of the walls has, has my perspective so far off that I would swear, I wouldn't swear, obviously, but you're not supposed to swear. Don't forget that. I would uh, bet. No, we, don't bet either. Um <laughs> I would what? Thank you. What was that? Vouchsafe. Thank you. I would vouchsafe. Can count on the Puritans to help us out when we don't know what words to use. Somebody look that word up and tell me what it means. I'm probably just cursed and don't even know it. I would, uh, I would think really safe. I would vouchsafe that. That ball rolled uphill. Why? Because the tilting, as C.S. Lewis calls it in one of his books, the world is bent. And grandfather's house is bent. And you just can't tell what straight is anymore. Well, the Bible says your world is bent. That as you walk through this world, you begin to get twisted by it and off-center, and you just cannot walk a straight line. One of the hobbies that my wife and I like to have is restoring old houses. And it's fun. I I was an engineer before I became a pastor, and so it's kind of satisfies my desire to be a mechanical engineer and to make things with my hand and it's a puzzle and it's all that fun stuff but you know what there are days when you get in those old houses and every wall has settled in a different direction uh, as the floors settle and it doesn't matter what you do there is no square point in that whole room and you can hang that sheetrock upside down backward and forward, no matter what you do, at the bottom, it's not going to match. And it just some days, right, Mike, it just drives you crazy. Right, Jonathan? I mean, they're just, you think, I wish somebody would draw a straight line in this stupid house. Well, here it is. Here's your straight line. But look, you have to walk by faith and not by sight. (laughs) If you have your eyes open in grandfather's house, you're going to get it wrong. And if you are looking at your feelings or at the opinions of people around you, if you're looking at, at uh, your friends around you or at the television or at the radio or at the newspaper or the media, and you're going to get from them what is valuable or what is right, you are always going to be off kilter. Your life is not going to come to a corner and match. It's not going to be pleasing to God. There is only one way to survive in a bent world, and that's to have something straight. That's why we call the Bible the canon. The word canon means straight. Here it is. We walk by faith and not by sight. Well, there's a second thing that you need to know about how to please God, and that is that we must struggle much with our sinful desires. I've alluded to this already in the rotten tomato illustration, but in Galatians 5, where God tells you the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the next verse is, and we who are Christ have crucified the old self 
with its sinful passions and desires. What Paul is telling you there, what we're going to see over the next few weeks, is that in order to get the love and the joy and the peace and all those other things, you have to get out (laughs) something else. You have these sinful desires that rebel against them. Uh, we We haven't had any... Uh, mice in our house in Chicago. But when we lived in Arkansas, we had a lot of mice. And I always thought the best thing for a mousetrap was what? I mean, what do you put on a mousetrap? Everybody knows that. Cheese, right? But it turns out it's not cheese. What is it? It's peanut butter. I didn't know that, but I learned that. You put the little peanut butter on the mousetrap, and that smell just... They just love it, don't they? They're running around... Ah, peanut butter. Now listen... Their desires are telling them what? There is heaven. We have, we have arrived, nirvana. We have come to the holy place. Right? That's what its passions and desires are saying. What's the reality? Dead mice. You know, as much as, as Pastor Kaiser alluded to it earlier, as much as it hurts our self-esteem, the Bible says, doesn't your experience tell you that it's true? That you have desires, just like the Bible says, that will war against godliness? Don't you know that feeling inside? That's the feeling that a Christian always has until we get to heaven. It is going to be a struggle against sinful desires. That's always part of living a life pleasing to God. There's a third thing. We must abide in Christ This is a whole sermon, so I'm not going to preach it today, but I would just remind you of what Jesus said in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do no good thing. You can do nothing, but in me you can bear much fruit. And it is a constant temptation when we're thinking about how to change to begin to try to do it in our own flesh. And so we must constantly be thinking about working on this idea if we're going to please God, of abiding in Christ. Because every day, just like we looked at in the, in the communion meditation, every day when you... How does it work? Let me tell you how it works. Satan comes to you and says, God doesn't like you because you haven't changed in this area. And you, you know that you need to change in that area, and then you change. And then you know what Satan says? God likes you because you changed in this area. And that's not true. God likes you. God loves you because of Jesus. And because Jesus loves you, He lets you change because it's your joy to change, remember? That's where we started. There's nothing we like better. There's nothing that pleases us more than pleasing God. So we must constantly resist that temptation even as we grow in pleasing Him. And then fourth, we must make progress We must make progress. I don't want to make too much out of the word walk in verse 7, though it does say we walk by faith. I'm I'm bringing in some other scriptural ideas that we do not have time to look at today. What time do we... We're doing okay. We're we're doing great. Three hours. Hallelujah. You ever get the feeling after the songs, we have the songs and then we have communion, we have prayer and then we have another songs that... That, that I'm supposed to get up here and say the benediction. I was thinking about that while I was sitting there. <laughs> it's time for the benediction. It just made me wonder what people who are first time they visit here, what they're thinking right about then. 
They already had one sermon. Now they got somebody else getting up to preach. What are they going to have? What if they have four or five? <laughs> oh, hallelujah. Where were we? Yeah, what else are you going to do? We're going to eat at the Kaiser's house. Hallelujah. <laughs> but d- d- look at what it says. For we walk by faith. We don't run. It's not a run. And, and, and I want you to think about that because uh, there are two things sinners want. They always want change to be instantaneous and easy. And the Bible never says you're going to get it. Well, the Bible promises you it won't be either. <laughs> it will neither be instantaneous nor will it be easy. It's a walk. But yet it's also not sitting. We don't sit by faith. We are changing. We are making progress. My wife has a chart on the wall in the kid's bedroom. And on that chart, she goes to it every four, five, six months, something like that. And the kids stand up. And what does she do? She marks how tall they are. And then what does she write beside it? How much they weigh. Now, why is that? Because she wants to see if they've grown any. Because, listen, if they haven't grown, what's wrong? They're sick. There's something wrong. I should have said that. If they haven't grown, what does that mean is what I should have said. It means there's something wrong. Children have to constantly be making progress up the chart. Or you say, we need to make a doctor's appointment and make sure they're okay. Well, God says the same thing about you. Does some of you need a doctor's appointment today? Does some of you need to say, honestly, the grace of God has not been producing in me over the last six months or a year. The kind of change which God promises is my right as a child of God. As His daughter, I get to grow. And I'm not getting it. And I want it. I don't want to miss out. If you are not getting that change, please grow in the grace of Christ. And then uh, under the idea of the grace of God produces a desire to please Him, there's a second main point. What things to do to please God? What things do we do? And I'm not going to fill that section out today because the answer to that is all the rest of the sermons we ever preach. In other words, what things do you do to please God? Well, you do everything (laughs) to please God. In fact, it even says that in the text. Doesn't it say we do all things to please Him? We make it our aim uh, to be well-pleasing to Him. There are other places where it says we do everything to please the Lord. But what I do want you to think about here, just for a second, this is a little bit of a a sideline, but I think it's really important. Because one of the, the questions that comes up a lot in church is, when are the sermons going to be more practical? I need specifics. I need to know how to work it out in practical ways. And honestly, this is honest truth. If my sermons aren't practical enough, I do want you to tell me. I probably don't want you to tell me after church on Sunday because I'm a little sensitive right after preaching. But on Tuesday or Wednesday, be sure and tell me in a nice way, right? Pastor, I loved your sermon. It was fantastic. Best sermon I've ever heard. Better than Jesus himself, I'm sure, but, right? It's all my fault. I can't do it right, but I need a little more help in practicality. You tell me that, and I will work because I do want to improve, but I want you to think about something else. Today, in the preaching of this word, we have Pastor Kaiser. He's been a pastor longer than I have. He hired me to my first job, but we also have some people, probably today, who are not even Christians, who are considering. Maybe some of you have just become believers, and so it's hard to make application very specific that covers everybody. 
You know, some of you may need to be told, you need to get up and get busy doing the things of God. And some of you may be told, you need to quit being so busy doing stuff. You need to be the man of God. So it may be the exact opposite device, advice. Solomon says that in, in Proverbs. He says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. But do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So he's saying there's sometimes when you get the specific application, it's different for different people. Now, why do I tell you all of this? It's this. Pastor Kaiser and I are committed to what has been called a 2020 vision for ministry. Turn in your Bible to Acts 20, please. Acts chapter 20. We teach the Word of God, and of necessity, it has a bit of a general, more general and overarching principles and themes when we preach publicly. But there is a place for us as pastors to get real specific. And Paul tells us about that in Acts 20.20. 20. And so it's, this is called a 2020 vision for ministry. Look at Acts 20.20. 20. He's talking to the elders and the church of Ephesus, and he, he tells them to remember how I kept nothing back, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Pastor Kaiser and I are going to teach publicly, and that's critical, and it is... Again, correct me when I'm not doing well, but it is going to be more general. But you know what? We're going to counsel and disciple, and we're going to email you, and we're going to, to interact over meals, and we're going to do the teaching practical ministry from house to house. So I can say to you, brother or sister, in this area, in this aspect of struggling much with sinful desire, what about this rotten tomato in your life? And get specific enough to help you, and hopefully you will do that for Pastor Kaiser also. That was a joke. Pastor Kaiser as opposed to me. Get on. Yeah, okay. I want to teach you the Word of God publicly. I want to do it across the dining room table. Then third, the grace of God not only produces confidence, it produces a desire to please God. And then third, it motivates us to please Him. It motivates us to please Him. God calls this process of casting off rotten tomatoes the crucifixion of the flesh. And for any who have sat in counseling with me, you know that we will talk often about dying to self. Now, why would anybody want to do that? Why would anybody want to die to self or crucify the flesh or clear out rotten tomatoes, any of that stuff? Well, there are three reasons. First, you need to know that pleasing the Lord is an honorable calling. This is something that is honorable friends you have been made in the image of god you are the temple of the holy spirit following god practical holiness living a life to please him it is a high and glorious privilege for which you were made it is an honorable calling if you go right out there in that parking lot and look in the back of my truck there are about 20 boxes and they are filled with all of our fine china because as I was driving back from wherever I was, <laughs> Chicago, this week, uh, we, we, Helen and I decided we'll, we'll pack the fine china and we'll put it in the truck uh, rather than trust it to the movers. That's, that's pretty smart because we want to take care of it. And we've, Now, that fine china, we've had it since we were married. You know something interesting to me? 
Um, no, you, are, you don't know. Here is something interesting to me. In the, in the 15 years we've been married, we've gone through three or four sets of, of uh, inexpensive china. They chip and they break. Some of them, when you put them in the microwave, they fall apart. Some of them, when you put them in the dishwasher, all of the little uh, glaze peels off of them. But we've had that fine china. We washed it in the dishwasher. We microwave it, and it has never chipped. All of the pl- except for the one I dropped. All of the other plates are in great shape. <laughs> the fine china is a lot better quality than the cheap stuff. But you know what? When my kids come and say, "Dad, I'm going to make some mud pies," I do not give them the fine china because it's reserved for an honorable calling. It's good. It's better. It's tough. It probably would not get chipped, but it's reserved for something else. You know what? You are reserved for something better than a life giving in to sinful passions and desires. You have an honorable calling. Holiness. Living a life pleasing to Him is a wonderful privilege. And I want you to enjoy that. Then second, a second motivation here is that it is a pleasurable calling. It is a pleasurable calling. I have to remind you of that because the idea of crucifying the old self seems to be pretty far away from pleasure. And when you are going through it, when I say to you, what about this sin? And that, and your stomach begins to grow into a knot and you begin to think in your mind, that self-righteous turkey, what is he doing telling me that? I don't want to repent of it. What about his sins? I remember when he did all of those things. And then the word of God comes to you and say, crucify the old self with its sinful desires and passions. It feels like dying. (laughs) That's why it's called death. But listen to Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I appreciate so much Pastor Matthew Henry. He's a Puritan pastor. On his deathbed, he called his best friend to him and said, Friend, you have heard many men's dying words. These are mine. So here's a guy who, was, as he was dying, was, had enough presence of mind to be able to say, write this down because this is it. Here are my dying words. A life spent in communion with God is the pleasantest life in the world. What an encouragement. Here's a guy who lived all of his life living to please the Lord. He, he wrote commentaries 400 years ago, and we still read them. He wrote commentaries 400 years ago. Not only Pastor Kaiser and I read them, Lee Warren reads them in order to write his devotional and guide him in his thinking for single people. It's very valuable stuff, but here's his testimony. It's the most pleasant life in the world. He struggled with the flesh just like you and I do, but he tells us at the end, it's worth it. It is your joy. And then third, notice that uh, from this text that a living life pleasing to the Lord is an eternal calling. Some people are very confused about grace and they think that God's grace is just that He accepts us just as I am and nothing else matters. But the Bible says that the grace of God which saves always also sanctifies. And so the grace of God which brings change into our lives is what saves us. So if your life is not changing today, if you would have to honestly say, you know, I just really do not want the difficulty of making my aim to please the Lord. If I really am not interested in Pastor Kaiser and Pastor Durham sitting across the dining room table talking about rotten tomatoes, I don't want to make that kind of growth in the faith. 
then do you not have to ask if you really know Christ? This Jesus of the Bible saves us from the final penalty of sin. But He also now works that grace backward into our lives to save us from the power of sin so that you have the joy of living a life pleasing to the Lord. Would you please make that your aim? Father, I thank you for this great promise of being able to please you. Father, I I do not know every person here at this church, but I know many of them. And I know absolutely that their desire is to please you. And I thank you that that desire is from you, it is to you, and it is for your glory. Lord, we also thank you this morning that that same desire is for our joy. And that we can confess together this morning that we enjoy nothing better, we like nothing better than to please you. So thank you, Lord, that you promised to give us your spirit to produce in us fruit that, yes, there is some painfulness in the process, but it is fruit which is pleasing to you, the bearing of which pleases us. Give us this faith, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.